Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to Chess Journal Club webinar. We are here today to discuss the antibiotic timing and progression to septic shock, an article that was published in this month's Chess Journal. We're excited to have our panelists here with us today. I am Alice Gallo. I'm an intensivist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, and I'm joined today as, as my moderator, my BFF, Dr. Viren Cole. Hi guys, I'm a pulmonary and critical care doc out here in Syracuse. I work at uh, Krauss Health and at the uh, university here. And uh, this is one of the favorite things we do. We get to learn and we get to learn uh, right from the uh, author's maths. So right on with it, Alice. Uh, we're gonna ask the authors to introduce themselves. So Roshan, can you introduce yourself? Hi, my name is uh, Roshan Vesaria. I'm a uh, third-year medical student at the University of Kansas uh, School of Medicine. Dr. Simpson, yeah. can you introduce yourself? Steven? Gladly, yes. Uh, my name is Steve Simpson. I am a professor of medicine and pulmonary critical care and sleep at the University of Kansas. And uh, for what it's worth, I am the immediate past president of CHEST. Anko? Hello. Happy to be here. Uh, my name is Angel Cos. I am a pulmonary critical care physician at the Cleveland Clinic. Uh, really, really honored to be part of this panel with such a great group. We're very excited to have you all here today. And for the audience, all the panelists and Dr. Cole and myself have no conflicts of interest to, to declare. Uh, we're going to start with the first question for the for the um, panelists, and I'm going to ask Roshan for you to start. And I just want to take a, a second to tell everybody that Roshan is a third-year medical student, and he has a first author paper on chest. So it's amazing. <laughs> just want to say how amazing you are. Um, I, I want to start with the question of when you when you started to think about this paper and this study. What, what were the gaps in knowledge that existed at that time when you first started conceptualizing everything that you, that you were planning to fill? And how do you think that happened? Do you think you filled that gap? Yeah, thank you for um, having us on this um, <clears throat> here. Um, so I'll just start kind of with the background of why we, why we decided to study this. Um, so originally the surviving sepsis campaign had recommended for treatment be started as soon as possible within one hour of sepsis or septic shock recognition. And that was based on various studies that showed that delays in antibiotics lead to increased mortality. Um, but uh, recent medical societies had started to question the sub one core measures that they should remove the sepsis without shock or use just sepsis without shock as their, um, their data point because the data was better for um, using septic shock is the, when you start antibiotics. Um, and they say that the other flaws in those studies were that they were retrospective, um, they were not accounting for severity of illness, and that they were linearizing data that it's not linear. Um, so then using these critiques, we kind of wanted to um, evaluate whether there is a relationship between time from presentation to administration of antibiotics and progression of septic shock um, among all patients presenting with suspected infection in the ED. So I think a couple of unique things about this study is that we looked at all suspected infection patients in the ED um, versus other studies that looked at patients already having sepsis or severe sepsis or septic shock. Um, another thing is that we're looking at progression to septic shock, not mortality. We also looked at mortality as an endpoint, 
but progression to septic shock um, uh, using the vasopressor time was uh, something that was unique to this study as well. Um, Dr. Simpson, you have anything else to add to that? Um, yeah, just a, just a little. You know, we've been interested in this question of do antibiotics prevent progression to septic shock for quite some time now? And the simple reason for that is, is and everyone who's listening to this call knows that the mortality rate associated with septic shock is substantially higher than the mortality rate associated with sepsis or severe sepsis. And, and so it stands to reason that if antibiotics actually do prevent progression of septic shock, uh, that you want to give them as early as you can in the course. And so we wanted to figure out, is there, is there on an hour by hour basis, is there actually any effect here? Um, and, and so that's why we got interested in this topic and we previously uh, published some work on this. And I will tell you, I had the interesting experience of going to a uh, conference in Europe where the speaker pulled up a slide of my graph from the previous paper we did on this topic and goes, here's some work by Steve Simpson, who is a real antibiotic believer. And he wasn't viewing that as being as being a good thing. And then what he tried to point out was that in that particular work where we literally were looking at per hour, what is the rate of progression to septic shock? He said, see, the rate of progression here doesn't go up until you hit hour five. So what's all the big to do? What he neglected to understand was that even though the rate had not gone up, people were continuing to progress to septic shock in each passing hour. And so that's what we wanted to look at. We want to look at, at starting as early as possible and does it make a difference? Does each passing hour actually make a difference? Yeah, I just wanted to add something. I wanted to congratulate first the authors for this study. And I think this study actually fills a very important gap because we have had studies like the one from Anand Kumar that show that once shock has ensued, there is increasing mortality for every hour of delay. And then previous paper from Steve that actually showed in patients with severe sepsis, when we delay antibiotic administration, there's a much higher progression rate to septic shock. So this one actually looks at the early phase when we have suspected infection and what happens to those patients, those patients who do not yet have sepsis or severe sepsis. And those patients actually in this paper, we can see how they will progress if we delay antibiotics. And just one thing that it's very interesting, and I think um, I find it very fascinating is how we have gone from 20 years ago when uh, I mean, practice have changed. Now we became very aggressive with antibiotics. We have reduced sepsis mortality. And now we're questioning that approach, again, trying to revert the pendulum. But I think, I mean, and that ultimately, there are multiple studies that have shown that antibiotics are key in the management of sepsis. And I think this study shows that even in the early phases, in the very, very early phases, they are critical to changing outcomes. Amazing, thank you so much. Roshan, do you wanna go over um, an overview of your results? So everybody who's listening can also follow. Okay, um, I guess I can move to the, the next slide with the graphs then. That'd probably be the best slide, or do you want to start with the patient's No, that's okay. It, it, it might be good, Russian, to show people, because I think it's key that even though this is a single center study, just how yeah. many people were in it. Okay. 
Yeah, so originally we had, uh, so we got that data from, um, a, a Heron is a database we have at University of Kansas. That's where we got the data from. So 78,438 patient encounters were um, met our inclusion criteria of being 18 years of old of age, um, ED admit, and the mutant suspected infection has having antimicrobial and blood body fluid culture initiated within four hours of one another. And that's what we decided suspect infection. Like we thought about like having like a positive um, blood culture and stuff like that, but sometimes those can be not very sensitive and it's difficult to get that data as well. So we decided that is suspect infection. And then we had some patients excluded either because of no reason we did triage or first antimicrobial time. And that could be because like their first antimicrobial time was before they even presented to the ED. So there must've been some data discrepancy there um, or having initial antimicrobial administered greater than 24 hours after ED triage. And then that'd be good because that may be because they got infection after they entered the hospital already. Um, and then 607 as septic shock on presentation, which we defined as having a vasopressor initiated within three hours of ED triage. Uh, so ultimately from that, we got 74,114 patients. Um, and of those 5,510 progressed to septic shock based on the sepsis two definition, that was about like 4,900 based on sepsis three definition. Um, and then 68,000 did not progress to septic shock. Uh, so if we can talk about these graphs then. Um, so we, we wanted to um, look at these graphs specifically because we had a lot of difficulty in how do we want to uh, visualize the data ourselves. So they display the cumulative percentage of patients who progress to septic shock with each passing hour until antimicrobial administration. So I guess we can think about each point being calculated by the divide, dividing the number, total number of patients progressed to septic shock, having received antimicrobials within the given interval from triage um, by the total number of patients in that category. Um, so figure 2A is showing all the patients. Uh, figure 2B shows them break and broken up by um, propensity groups. So we calculated, we wanted to show some way of severity of illness. Um, so we calculated a propensity score for having received antimicrobials within one hour based on their QSOFA, um, SIRS, and um, severe sepsis and presentation. So the red line on the bottom is group one, that's the least severely ill population. The blue line is group two, and then the, the gray one is group three, and that's the most severely ill population. We're going to just show severity of illness. And then the figure 2C has a denominator of uh, total number of patients who progressed to septic shock, having received uh, the antimicrobials within 10 hours of ED triage. So the main uh, takeaway from um, this, these graphs were that the greatest increase in percentage of patients progressing to septic shock occurs within the uh, first five hours of antimicrobial administration. Um, so that was kind of just a a difference that we, like Dr. Simpson talked about in the beginning, like the rate increases after five hours um, with other studies. So we wanted to show that the highest rate of um, progression is actually in the first few hours. That's the most important time to give the antibiotics. Um, I guess we can also talk about the, the rate versus like the odds ratio um, comparison at this time. Mm -hmm. um, so like, we can think about rate as new events per, per unit time. Um, maybe just go back to the, the previous slide, sorry. Um, rate is new events per unit time versus like an odds ratio being like cumulative events um, over time. So even though the rate may not necessarily increase with each hour, the cumulative event of them getting septic shock does increase per hour. So that shows that the, the antibiotics 
um, in the beginning do make a difference in ultimately preventing their progression to septic shock. Um, Dr. Simpson, do you have any words to add on that about distinguishing the rate versus odds ratio? Yeah, just a, just a little bit, because it, it's important because the folks who are criticizing early antibiotics are talking about rate of progression. And, and they were talking about the bars in our previous studies graphs and other previous studies graphs. And, and what they're talking about is, so if I say at hour two, out of all the people that are still left and haven't had antibiotics before hour two, how many people... How many people in this hour um, that get antibiotics progress to septic shock versus how many who don't get their antibiotics progress to septic shock? And that's what they're doing. The, the odds ratio is it's a different concept. The, the purpose of an odds ratio is to say, okay, um, all things being the same, now, remember, this is done in a logistic regression analysis, a multivariable logistic regression analysis. What the odds ratio tells you is all things being the same, what does this added hour of exposure tell you about likelihood of progressing to septic shock? And that's a different concept, um, and, and it's important. So it basically says, basically what we're saying is if I didn't have this extra think we may have They're likely to progress this epic and that's the difference with an odds ratio and it's real it, it's it's sounds like maybe a subtle difference but it's a crucially important difference um and i'm Dr. sorry Simpson. if my voice isn't coming through i just got a notification that my internet connection is unstable <laughs> that's all right dr simpson i was going to request you if, if you don't mind the very last sort of point you were making about um you know the differences would you mind repeating that because I think we, we had a loss. We stopped hearing you when you said all things being the same and then we stopped hearing you. Mm. Oh, I, I think, think you might be experiencing trouble. Yeah. But I think to summarize. Okay, I'm point, sorry. I'm back here, guys. <laughs> I know I missed something. <laughs> you know what? We'll start fresh, Dr. Simpson. Would you mind just quickly going over that difference again sort of to help people understand how rate versus uh, you know, your likelihood is different. Okay, I'll try. And I, I perceived that perhaps my voice wasn't coming through very well the first time. Huh? So, so what previous studies have looked at is something like this. They say out of all the patients that are left, say at hour two or at hour three, left who haven't received antibiotics, what proportion of the people who get their antibiotics here in this third hour proceed to shock? And the next would be for four hours and so on. The odds ratio using a logistic regression analysis and looking at multiple variables basically says all other things being equal, how much, do, how much propensity for progressing to shock do you get from this extra hour of delay? And those are somewhat subtle differences, but they're absolutely crucial differences because, because sepsis 
and suspected infection are something different from septic shock. And I, I'm happy to admit that septic shock, by the time you've got septic shock, you're a, a bus full of people careening down the mountain road with no brakes. You know, it's very difficult. So you would expect that every hour, even a higher proportion are, are going to get sepsis. But the key thing, key thing is, uh, is that's the wrong way to look at it, especially when you're looking at something like sepsis, severe sepsis, or even just, um, even just suspected infection. Dr. Cause for you, real quick. Um, do you, you know, there's always arguments about statistics as statistics, right? And is this a play? On that, do you think how much how much of this is sort of due to the fact that sepsis is not like a on and off thing? It's almost like a continuous variable of clinical existence, right? Mm -hmm. So, how much does that play into it in your experience? And go ahead, go ahead. Oh, I thought you had frozen. Sorry. <laughs> no, I think it is. It is. It is really important. I think this study stresses the importance of early antibodies. And I think what is key is in the graph that you have here on the top right is that it shows that that effect is, I mean, it persists in all the different propensities for progression. So even in the patients with milder disease, it shows that it still makes a difference. So I don't think that just saying that statistics and I mean, if we're doing just some gymnastics with the statistics is to get the results we want. I think that there are multiple studies that have shown that antibiotics are critical once sepsis has presented or when there's septic shock. But this one, I think, goes a step further to say even when you have this undifferentiated suspected infection, mm -hmm. uh, you are more likely to progress. And I think once you get into a little bit more of the details, for example, patients with QSOFA, that where, I mean, by having QSOFA, they are sicker because they're probably having hypotension already and they progress uh, in, in, in higher numbers. I think that stresses that fact as well. Yeah, and, and I think, Viren, you, you bring out a real important point. We talk about sepsis and we talk about septic shock as if these are individual points that that quite literally it's like you open a door and walk through that is clearly not the case sepsis and septic shock are both responses to infection they lie on a continuum and what does that mean a continuum is if you envision a timeline a continuum means that if you look at a point right next to another point you may not be able to tell them apart very much, but if you look at one end versus another end, wow, they're way separated. So we use sepsis, frankly, we used the severe sepsis and we use septic shock. We use these definitions because these are things that with our simple little minds, we've been able to recognize as, oh, something different's going on here when this happens. Not because the process is something different. The process begins with infection and the level of severity progresses, sometimes with time, sometimes with variants of organism, but various different reasons uh, it progresses. And it, it's a continuum, not, not, as they say, a spectrum where things are different uh, along the line. Roshan, do you wanna add anything? 
No, I think that, that that's good. Okay. Um, and uh, just looking here at the at the um, multivariate logistic regression um, table, um, the, I've noticed here that the patients who had recorded QSOFA received antibiotics earlier uh, than the ones who had like recorded um, sepsis two and sepsis three. Why do you think that happened, and how do you explain that difference? Any thoughts? Um, so I think maybe QSOFA patients got antibiotics before the, like the SIRS and other patients, because just if you look at the parts of the QSOFA with the blood pressure, respiratory rate, and the mental status, it's some of those things can be pretty severe and, um, practitioners may want to give antibiotics, um, uh, very quickly for that kind of scenario. Um, but as, as we show in a different table that the QSOFA positive patients, even though they got the antibiotics earlier, they uh, also progressed to septic shock at an earlier time point. Um, so this may show that they, they were, had a baseline higher level of um, sickness and that even though the antibiotics were given earlier, they just had a higher likelihood of progressing to septic shock anyway. Um, so I guess... Um, just comparing the QSOFA and SIRS, SIRS patients also got antibiotics earlier, but they, if they progressed to septic shock, it was at a later time point. So they're maybe at a less severe um, state of illness at that time point. Yeah, this, this table shows that. Um, so if you were positive QSOFA score, median time to septic shock was 11 hours versus positive SIRS score is 26 hours. Um, and if you're positive for both, it was um, about 10 hours. So um, there's a clear severity than this um, difference between those two scores. Um, that may be the difference for why they got the antibiotics earlier. Yeah. Yeah, we think the way we say it in the paper is they not only were sicker, they looked sicker. Um, and so people were, people were willing Sorry. to jump in with antibiotics. Yeah. Okay. And you may have noticed on the previous graphs that that forty percent of people who got their antibiotics in the or got their antibiotics in the first hour, and yet they had a higher higher incidence of progression to shock if they got their antibiotics in the first hour. And again, that's probably because they not only looked sicker, they were sicker, uh, and probably some they had begun barreling down the mountain already before they ever got to the ER. So, so that's why we sort of we sort of ignore not we don't ignore those folks. We still believe they need to get their antibiotics in the first hour, um, but they they sort of alter the baseline a little bit. And I'll admit we were we were a little bit cowed when we first looked at the data and went, "Well, this is sad. The people who get the antibiotics in the first hour do worst." Um, but then we figured out as we did the propensity score and so forth, oh, it's because they were literally more ill when they presented and they looked more ill, and that's why they got the antibiotics. Angel, anything to add? Oh, just uh, probably reiterate what Roshan said is if you look at the QSOFA criteria, hypotension, mental status changes, and increased respiratory rate, two out of those three criteria are uh, equivalents to uh, an organ damage. So clearly those patients are in a much more severe stage, and that's why it probably got recognized sooner and they got antibiotics uh, earlier. And I think this also, it's 
very congruent with studies, though, for example, the one that did Matt Chirpek did when he compared SERS to QSOFA. And basically what he found is that SERS tends to appear about 12 hours earlier than QSOFA in patients who end up being transferred or, or die from sepsis in the ICU. So mm -hmm. kind of goes along the same line and kind of uh, emphasizes the same similar conclusion. I think I remember Dr. Simpson sort of making a point on this once that SERS may be slightly more sensitive to picking up the septic state, but QSOFA is more specific. And I think you guys did uh, clearly state that, mm -hmm. sort of reiterated that, so that's good. Um, I had a quick follow-up for you guys. Uh, Roshan, you know, you said a huge part of your study is that you included people who were sort of suspected to have an infection, not necessarily who are septic already. And how, in a retrospective sort of data extraction, were you able to differentiate that? Because I think that's a huge part, right? Because no patient walks into the emergency room saying, hey, listen, I'm septic, right? In mm -hmm. hindsight, we all know that they said that, but in real time, we don't. Mm -hmm. And that I struggle with, right? So do you go aggressive and treat everybody that looks like sepsis, treat them off the bat? Because that is what needs to or happen or does happen. So how did you differentiate that? in a retrospective sort of extraction? Yeah, uh, that's a good question because the, uh, yeah, having suspect infection is a very difficult thing to do in a retrospective study to figure out who actually is infected. Um, like you know, other studies have shown that people with vague symptoms are, are less likely to get treatment and they still ultimately get septic or get sick and stuff. So I think it is important to treat even the, the least or the less ill patients because um, like we showed it that with those graphs, the, even the propensity score one group, they had an increased rate of progression of septic shock or increased odds of progression of septic shock with delays in antibiotics. Um, and we're unable to determine exactly which patients were um, actually infected because we don't have the blood culture data and it, it just was one of the limitations in our study. Um, but just based on the number of patients we had in our study um, and the number of patients that were still not at this like the most failed group, um, uh, we still think we can make some of those mm -hmm. conclusions and being able to treat the, the less ill patients, uh, mm -hmm. Dr. Simpson. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a real challenge in retrospective studies because we don't get to understand what the docs are thinking, but we do get to understand some of their actions and some of those actions are displayed in the electronic medical record where we can get them. So, so I think we said this already, but, but so our definition for suspected infection, I think is pretty reasonable. And we stole it, to be quite honest, from the sepsis three investigators. And I thought it was a great innovation in retrospective research when they did this. Uh, so the actions are that I get a culture of either blood or some body fluid, you know, sputum, urine, uh, aspirated joint, whatever it might be. If I get one of those cultures and I'm convinced enough they're infected to start an antibiotic, then that means I pretty well suspect they have infection. And we think that's a, uh, that's a good surrogate and those actions we can see. Even with that, we can't tell which doctors went, oh my God, this guy's infected and went sprinting to the computer to order cultures, you know, uh, and which ones kind of meandered around and saw a couple more patients and then sat down and ordered cultures. We don't, we don't know that, but it's a pretty reasonable surrogate for when a doctor thought, I think this guy's infected. 
and Hill, any comments, any questions for the panelists regarding their um, um, retrospective way of finding patients? Uh, no, I don't have any particular questions at, at this point. I think the design was really good considering the limitations that any retrospective study would, would have. And I think, I think it's spot on, so. Awesome, I agree. Speaking of limitations, as a segue, <laughs> what, are, well, what are the limitations of your study that you have identified uh, things that were correctable, things that were not correctable, and that was what it, what it, what it was. Yeah. Oh, no, there were no limitations in our study. <laughs> Go ahead, Rosa. Okay. So, uh, there are obviously limitations in every study. So um, the suspected infection thing is definitely one. We're unable to determine reasons for why antibiotics were delayed. There's obviously patients can have various reasons, and doctors can have various reasons why they may delay antibiotics for a patient. Uh, we don't have any symptom data. Uh, we're going purely on labs, vitals, and other things like that. Symptoms may be a big part of why a doctor prescribes antibiotics. Um, we're able to account for antimicrobials initially before the patient gets the ED. So if they're giving antimicrobials in the ambulance or something like that, we, we can't account for that. Um, we couldn't assess for the appropriateness of the actual chosen antimicrobial. So we, we did collect data on which antimicrobials were given, and most of them were um, Piptazo and Ceftriaxone. So um, like that was like 90% of the antibiotics given in the study, but we could not assess the appropriateness of every antibiotic given. Um, another thing, we, we don't have data on fluid timing or amounts um, because previous studies have showed no effect on fluid timing on sepsis mortality, but that is a limitation in our study. Um, the last thing may be that we do not collect data on duration of vasopressors or vasopressor uh, free days, which may be important um, for clinicians in this study. Why did you decide not to collect the data on vasopressors? I was very curious about that. Um, timing, I, can, I mean timing. So we, we, I mean, we know when the vasopressor was given. We don't, I guess we don't have the data on how long it was given for or when it was stopped or anything. Um, I guess maybe just when we started looking at this, we wanted to know when septic shock developed. And um, that was our, like, kind of our end point. Um, mm -hmm. Maybe we, we could have looked more into why I was stopped or um, how long it was even for. No, and the intention was not could, was not could have or should have. It's just, I'm curious what mm. the discussion was. That was, that, that's what it was. Yeah, yeah. Our real discussion was when is the onset of septic shock as yeah. best we can tell. So we really weren't looking to see what was the duration of septic yeah. shock. Although, you know, in all retrospective studies and after you've gone through the IRB and everything and after you've got all your data and you've analyzed this, you always go, man, I wish we would have asked for that, <laughs> you know, um, but it's too late because these are blinded data now. We'd have to go, we'd have to analyze everything all over again, just to get to that. Of course. So here's a question from the audience. And I think this is for any large scale trial studying sort of, I shouldn't say nebulous, but um, non-discrete disease entities, this always comes up and it's worth revisiting. So what was the time frame of this data set guys? Mm -hmm. So March, 2007 to March, 2020. Was a... All right. So Cindy then follows up with, in that time, does it include patients, you know, from before and after the sepsis bundle mandates? Yes, it does. 
Mm-hmm. Right. So I, yeah, that's, clearly yes. does. Clearly but, does. And and on top of that, uh, I guess we didn't mention this as a limitation. Maybe it's a limitation. Maybe it isn't. We started having a a sepsis response program here at the University of Kansas in 2004, and we have worked continuously since that time to recognize sepsis better and treat it earlier and faster. So. So in case anyone's wondering, yes, there should be continual improvements through the course of that period of time uh, in our approach to sepsis and our mortality rates at the university have gone down through that period of time. Whereas in the last five years, they've gone down more slowly because we got really I'm proud of our folks here. They've gotten really quite good. In fact, you may notice that the median time to antibiotics in this study is 1.85 hours, which is, that is awesome in any emergency department. It's what we shoot for. It's what we all want, but to actually achieve it is really, really quite something. Um, yeah, so, so we view this as an advantage that our, that our data cross that threshold into the SEP1 measure. Uh, so we see what we were doing well before that and well after that too. So I suppose it's a good time to ask Dr. Cause. So single center study, right? How much of this could be just how good a center is, how good their practices are, how good the flow of data is through the different specialties. So reported mortality around 10%, Dr. Cause. Thoughts on that, um, how that kind of plays into interpreting this data before we go to the authors? Yeah, and I, I guess I'm gonna venture a little bit into kind of hypothesizing what could have happened. So we're talking about 10% mortality, but that is among patients with suspected infection. So it's not necessarily patients with sepsis or septic shock. So we don't have that data. And two is that I would argue that in that small mortality, it would be harder to find an impact of antibiotics. And it actually the opposite happened. They, I mean, the authors found that there was a significant difference for every hour very early. When you would expect that when the mortality is not that big, that it will be much harder to identify those differences, but they actually found them. So, mm-hmm. and that is, I think it speaks to the fact that uh, it, it is really important uh, to give antibiotics early when you suspect infection because it does make a difference. Mm-hmm. Roshan, do you want to talk about why, why we think our septic shock mortality even is lower than what people normally see? Yeah, um, so all these patients got the antibiotics before they progressed to septic shock and they were all suspected infection patients like Dr. Cause was saying um, versus other studies that may have shown like, I think normally is like 20, 25% septic shock mortality. Um, a lot of those are with when septic shock develops and you give antibiotics, that's what the mortality is. Um, this is a very different population of patients. Um, that may be one reason why the mortality rate was so low. Yeah, yeah, we actually think, I, I, I think it almost proves our point even better that, that you can lower the mortality rate of septic shock if you give your antibiotics before the people get shock. And, and I think that's, that's really important and it fits with this concept of, of sepsis as a continuum and not as a set of stairs. That is fantastic. There, there are some really good questions in the Q&A. 
So I'm gonna add, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take one of them because it's it's amazing. While a great proportion of sepsis is bacterial in nature, it very well can be viral, as has been highlighted in this pandemic. That being said, how do you recommend balancing antimicrobial stewardship against appropriately early antibacterial therapy? Mm -hmm. Roshan, if you have opinions on that, I'm happy to hear them. If not, I'll I'll give mine. I think I think you'd be a better. <laughs> okay. Well, first off, I'm going to say that antibiotic stewardship is of crucial importance to us. Um, we, yes, we want people to give antibiotics early. We want to give them to the right people. However, at this juncture in time, it's sometimes very difficult to decide, am I looking at a viral sepsis or am I looking at a bacterial sepsis? So, the way to exercise antibiotic stewardship, it appears in that setting, is give the early antibiotics, but then gather your data and find out whether the second dose of antibiotics is really warranted or not. Because um, I would challenge you, even with people who have fairly straightforward COVID-19, sometimes they have nasty looking chest x-rays and you go, I probably had better cover atypical pneumonia until that COVID test comes back. Now, lucky for all of us, we're getting better mostly around the world. We're getting better at getting those tests back very quickly. Um, and so that's good. We can still get our antibiotics in early. But, uh, but I think the, the real thought process is, is not so much, do I give this first dose of antibiotics, but do I give the second? Um, and that's how we show good stewardship of our antibiotics. I always, I always have this say, and your paper just, just corroborates there. You can always stop antibiotics. You cannot go back in time and you sh and wish you had started them uh, within the hour. So mm -hmm. your paper just made it more clear to me. Mm -hmm. Well put, Alice. <laughs> Angel, do you want? Do you have any comments on that differentiation and and good stewardship? So I think I, I mean I agree with Steve, and I think that the first dose of antibiotics and stewardship are not mutually, mutually exclusive. I think you have to practice both. Stewardship is really important. But as you said, Alice, if you think a patient is septic, the risk of not giving the antibiotics over the benefit of just giving the first dose, I mean, th I mean there's no, no comparison. So it, when in doubt, first dose is what you need to give an every day reassess the need for the next dose of antibiotics because every day. Mm -hmm. there is actually data that shows that most of the inappropriate use of antibiotics is not, it goes to the extent that causes of antibiotics rather than the, the, initial, the initial doses. So that is one area that I think we could all reflect on a day-to-day -day basis and improve our practices but we should not withhold antibiotics on a patient who we think could be septic because the downside is, I mean, it's, it's really bad. The mortality is really high. Mm -hmm. Well, and let me, let me jump back in too and say why I think antibiotic stewardship is so crucially important is think about 
all of the septic patients you see and think about not having an antibiotic to treat them and what's going to happen then. And, and in fact, in a certain way, that's what happened to us with COVID, right? We have a, an organism that causes sepsis for which we have no antibiotics. And what happens? That infection festers and goes on and goes on and makes more and more inflammatory response and people die in fairly high numbers, and, and we just don't have specific ways of treating them. I think Dr. Coase has written something about that. That's right, with Dr. Simpson, so we wrote something <laughs> on that. <laughs> you know, um, as you guys were talking, I was also thinking about, yes, we are bacterial, viral, sort of, um, or atypical sepsis situations, but you know, talking about equity uh, and equality in care, uh, there's also a fair amount of, say, helminthic sepsis or mm -hmm. uh, parasitic sepsis, right? Which is, it's a whole nother ballgame. And I wonder how, where, where we would stand with that, because those involvements can sometimes be pretty drastic, right? Solid organ involvements, neural involvements, thoughts on that? Yes, um, and this is, this is an odd thing to say, I know, but there are times when a septic patient who's presenting in front of you needs something like ivermectin, uh, and that is really true. And Varun, thanks for bringing that up, because you, you absolutely know that I'm fully committed to, to equity for our patients, and it's easy, though, sometimes when you work in in a cool medical center in the United States to forget that there are places where just having an antibiotic is, is tough and, and choosing the correct antibiotics in that setting can be, uh, can be very difficult, but yeah, absolutely. Helminthic sepsis absolutely does occur. Um, luckily we don't encounter it that often in the United States, but we do encounter it. And when we do, usually we're fairly late in getting the antibiotics going because we didn't recognize that the helminth was present. We have another really, really interesting question from the audience in the Q&A. Um, if the authors could create a perfect study to answer this question, how, how do they think such a study would look like? Oh man, they stole my signature question. <laughs> <laughs> That's they <funny>. did. <laughs> it's a, but it's a great question, it's right? A great question. It's, so, yeah. it's so easy to criticize science. Yes. You didn't look for this. We didn't find, right? But it's hard. Science is hard. But hey, Dr. Simpson, if you had unlimited money and a magic wand, what would and you time. and Russian? And time. And unlimited time. What well, would you and Russian do? Yeah, well, I can tell you that that the actual study that people would buy and believe, I do not have clinical equipoise enough to do. And that study would obviously be to randomize these people that look like they're infected to get their antibiotics at hour one, hour two, hour three, hour four, and be able to track them prospectively. I... I I feel that that is just not something that's appropriate for us to do. Uh, uh, and so having said that, I think that the perfectly designed study to do this, given that it has to be retrospective, that we can't 
willfully withhold antibiotics from a patient that we believe to be infected. I think, believe me, we did as good a job of designing that perfect study as we think that, that a person could do. But I can tell you how you could improve this a little bit if we had 25 more centers worth of data, I think it would perhaps make this a little bit better. Um, and, uh, oh, I had something else in my brain and it just left me. But, but to make it multi-centered, perhaps we did these propensity levels. Um, we actually evaluated what gave you a higher propensity for getting uh, for getting your antibiotics early. And so I think that's a key thing that needs to be in the study. What are the factors that promote getting antibiotics early so that you can take a look at those and so that you can stratify into levels um, about who had a greater likelihood of getting them early for whatever those reasons might be. I think one might be able to take a machine learning approach to this data that we have to give you a few more insights um, into what variables ought to be measured in order to spread it out to the multi-center study. I just don't, I, I'd love to have a randomized control trial, You, but you, I can't do it. <laughs> I couldn't even be a participating center in such a study. So, so I doubt that it gets done. Important to point out, Russian, uh, we, we got a letter um, about this paper and we have, we're providing a written response, but I think Russian is probably okay for us to talk about this, where the gentleman pointed out in the fantasy trial which you guys know was the trial of antibiotics in the ambulance uh, in the Netherlands. And in that study, initially, it didn't appear to, that there was a signal for early antibiotics in that study. And so many of our detractors, so to speak, point to that study and go, look, getting antibiotics in the ambulance doesn't help anything. Well, you may know that just earlier, a couple of months ago, in CHEST, the fantasy authors went back to their data. They used machine learning techniques to, with, a, with what's called, um, um, oh, shucks, the word just just left my, but unstructured learning basically is what they did just to say, are there any things in this data that seem to point to a signal in one way or another? Uh, and the, the machine learning led them to evaluate the effect of age in that study. And what they found was that if you're under 75 years of age, there was definitely an effect um, uh, of the earlier antibiotics. Whereas if you were over 75, the older you got, the less effect of early antibiotics, which may just mean, it, I mean, this is sheer fantasy on my part, but what it may mean is that older people manifest sepsis less dramatically, and it takes longer before anyone even calls the ambulance. But, but we don't know the answer to that. But Roshan, so we look, we went back and took a look at our data so that we can respond to that letter and, and found some interesting things. I think Do you want to tell? One thing. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. About, oh, go sorry, go ahead, go ahead, Roshan. Oh, I was, um, yeah, we found pretty, pretty similar things that um, the antibiotics 
based on, I mean, we showed that antibiotics are important no matter what age in this study, but um, that the, the younger patients did respond to the antibiotics um, in a better way and they're less likely to progressing to a septic shock. Um, yeah, so that, that's what we found in our same, same data set. Yeah, it looks very similar, which is, is, is fascinating. It's sad because we all know that the older you are, the higher your likelihood of getting sepsis. Um, all I can say is as you get older, pay careful attention to yourself and run to the ER <laughs> and don't make them find you confused. I think one point that is important to stress about that study too is that uh, if I recall correctly, that the difference between both groups in the administration time for antibiotics was very short. One was like 20 minutes before arrival, the other one was within the first hour of arrival. Yeah, yeah. It, it yeah. even decreased after they trained the personnel in the ER. So actually the, the, the gap was even narrower. So yeah. really we're not comparing, I mean, it's not really fair to say that, I mean, the pre uh, or the, the ambulance administration does not do any good it is, doesn't do any good when you compare it to antibiotics within the first hour, mm -hmm. but not if the patient arrives to the ER and then the antibiotics get delayed for four or five hours. I'm sure we will see much, much more different results. So. Yeah, that's real important too. And, and one of my thoughts about that study always has been, that's great. You live in the Netherlands. This was in ambulances in the major cities in the Netherlands. Roshan and I live in a state where sometimes it's 45 minutes from the time you call before the ambulance even gets to you and equivalent amount of time before you get back to the ED. So that study is not necessarily applicable in every locale. You know, I was going to actually follow through with the same comment that is very different where I live. Yeah. Transport times can be well into hours and, yes. and it's snowing pretty heavily right now. So those are upwards of two or three hours. Sometimes. So that having been said, just one more sort of curveball to add there, you know, Haley Prescott study or Dr. Prescott study about, you know, sometimes patients, even weeks, not I shouldn't say weeks, so week ahead already start showing indication that you are not completely healthy, you already are sort of compromised and then you go into sepsis. And so the whole question is, you know, if you're coming to the hospital, have you now reached that tipping point of symptomatology? And, mm -hmm. and, and how much of that is sort of different with human behavior, availability of resources? Um, so I'm very, I'm sure you guys have, you know, you're gonna be able to delineate this better and better as we go forward. But I think that's gonna be interesting too access to resources, being able to get in on time, because early and late is here all relative to you hitting the ER. Yes, but, yes, but it is all relative, yeah. Mm -hmm. Right, but that in itself can be different by a day or two, and then all early and late is confounded. So thank you so, so much for sharing. Uh, clearly, I have now more to think about. Mm -hmm. And uh, as always, it's been fantastic having you guys. I'm gonna let Alice take over from here. It has been absolutely a pleasure to be with all of you. Time flies when we are together doing this mm -hmm. journal clubs, which is amazing. So I was hoping to get final thoughts on how does this change your practice or does it change your practice? Anything different that you're going to be doing, anything different that you're going to be paying attention to based on this paper. And I would like to start with, with Angel. 
um, and then go to Stephen and then give Roshan the the pleasure to um, to uh, take it home. And on behalf of Chest and the Chest Journal, I would love to uh, thank you all for participating and for your questions. So, Angel. Thank you. And I think this study emphasizes the importance of antibiotics in patients who present with a suspected infection, not the ones who are already determined to be septic or are in septic show, which in which a decision is much easier. Whether it would change practice or not, I hope it does reinforce the importance of antibiotics to those who may have been hesitant in view of the recent uh, information that has come from other societies kind of challenging the notion that we should give antibiotics early. I think this study clarifies is one more point that clarifies that early antibiotics matter in sepsis and in this specific case, in patients who are not even septic necessarily yet, but have, I mean, enough suspicion to, to think they have an infection, so. Yeah, yeah. I have to say, will this change my practice? Heck no, I have b believed that this was the right thing to do for a long time. Um, and and uh, so it won't change mine, but it will underscore my evangelism to other people for for doing the same thing. I will say that. Now, and I am also going to make a shout out, though, to my other halftime job, which is with the Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Authority in a program called Solving Sepsis. Um, we are funding people that are looking at ways to diagnose sepsis and diagnose infection earlier and to and to differentiate between what's a host response that tells us this is a viral infection versus what's a host response that tells us this is a bacterial infection. So we are going to get better and better, and we're going to have even firmer ground for giving antibiotics earlier. We'll be able to say this person has an infection based on the host response we see, it's likely to be bacterial. I can give them an oral antibiotic right now and they won't ever even feel like they need to go to the emergency room. And that's the ideal world. Uh, last thing I want to say, Allison, Baron, and, and Angel, it's an honor to be on the webinar with you. I am I'm sincerely honored that you picked our paper out of all the ones in chess this month to, to have us on here. So thank you. It's been a pleasure. Same for me. Thank you very much for having me on this um, call. And it's been a really great experience. And Roshan, keep, keep doing the good work, man. Uh, so, so proud. Um, I, I am only expecting fantastic things, you know. Thank you. I just thank couldn't you. let you go without saying that. <laughs> and Roshan, when the time comes, don't forget to be the Dr. Simpson to someone um, in the future as well. Yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah. I would love to go on Thank you. And we're very proud of you. We're very proud of you. We're very happy you were able to join us today, Roshan. And on behalf of Chess, thank you so much for everybody who joined us this afternoon. And follow us on Twitter. Um, we're all on Twitter. And Chest is on Twitter, Chest underscore journal. Um, so let's continue the conversation there. And have a great afternoon. Stay healthy. And for those of you in Minnesota, stay warm. <laughs> <laughs> you guys.